Welcome to a special Talking Feds one-on-one. I'm Harry Littman. We will on occasion, in addition to our other shows, welcome guests for just a one-on-one conversation with me. And today, in fact, is our first such episode. We were very happy to be able to speak at some length with Congresswoman Val Demings from the 10th District of Florida, a prominent name among her many other accomplishments in the mix for possible vice presidential consideration by Joe Biden. We reached her by telephone where she, the same as all of us, are holed up, sheltering in place and moving through her work as best she can, except her work consists of representing the people of Florida and trying to mitigate as much as possible the harsh effects of the coronavirus. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation, the first of its kind. Congresswoman, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to join you. It's great to be with you. Thanks. Now, there's so much to discuss about the virus. I really hope we have time to touch on your career prior to Congress. But I wanted to ask you first what your days are like now. Where are you working from? Are you isolated like the rest of us? Well, we have to lead by example now, don't we? So, yes. I am practicing social distancing. One of my neighbors asked me to change it to physical distancing because he said, we still need to be sociable beings, right? But I'm working at home. The work is not going undone. I have two calls a day with my congressional staff and we're still getting a lot of congressional business done. We also have conference calls with the speaker and the democratic leadership on a regular basis with our committees and we're moving forward. You know, we just passed the $2.2 trillion relief package, and we're now in the process of trying to take a look at what the next relief package will look like. So there's plenty to do, but I tell you what, the separation is brutal. So you have a very sort of Zoom-driven life or conference calls or what? Oh my goodness. We are driven by every, I think, platform that we possibly can be. The majority are conference calls, a lot of conference calls, certainly Zoom and FaceTime and and Skype. My son really laughs at me because, you know, he has to help his mom like every other day. Okay, what button do I push right here? But, uh, (laughs) and he just shakes his head and helps me. But, you know, this is something we've like we've never seen before. So we're being forced to do things that we've never done before. But out of the ashes, good things can come. And so we're making it work. Wow. And and what's what are things like in the neighborhood where you're living? Yeah, it's been very, very interesting. I either go for a morning run or get on my bike. And when I'm out running, several neighbors are out walking. And of course, they don't care that I'm running. They'll flag me down and keep their six feet distance from me. But, you know, they're just excited about trying to find out what's going on. And, and many of my neighbors say it's interesting because nobody wants to be in the situation that we're in, right? We want to be out of this thing as quickly as possible. But it has given everybody an opportunity to slow down, take a deep breath, spend time with their family, imagine that, get some things done that they hadn't been able to get done. I was contacted by some of my high school classmates. So think about that. Others talked about being contacted by college roommates that they hadn't spoken to in years. And so it is an unusual time, but I really think it's just given us an opportunity to reflect on really how blessed we are as a nation and, you know, taking a look at our vulnerabilities as well and and how we can be better on the other side of this. 
And now when you say you're on your bike, would this be bicycle or your Harley Road King Classic? Usually when my neighbors flag, they don't dare flag me down when I'm on my Harley, okay? <laughs> they, right. they, look, they, they wouldn't dare do that. But they do flag me down when I'm on my bicycle, the one that takes a lot of work to ride on. And that's the other thing that this moment has, has given us. I get to just get out, take a break and get out and ride and think about the challenges that we're facing, certainly here in Orlando, Florida. We know how important tourism is. Last year, we had 75 million people visit our area. Right now, air travel is down 90% at Orlando International. And so just thinking about, you know, the what's next. How do we, now that Florida finally shut down, how do we get Florida back open, get our economy back open and get people back to work and get our state moving again. And so it gives me that opportunity to really just kind of clear my head and get out and, and reflect on those things as well. Yeah, I think all of us sort of feel that buffer. All right. Well, that's where I want to move to. But in case we do run out of time, I just have to quickly let listeners know to frame our conversation that you have one of the most interesting and compelling resumes for a representative I've ever seen, beginning with your childhood as the youngest of seven children in a two-room shack in the woods, your initial schooling in segregated schools, becoming the first in your family to graduate from college, going through your appointment as the first woman and chief of the Orlando Police Department. And then you launched a second career in 2017 and most recently have had a kind of supernova rise in the House where you served as one of the impeachment managers and now, of course, your prominent placement on lists of potential vice presidential candidates. Well, let's go to topic number one. Tell us, I think there are special ways in which COVID is hitting Florida and special challenges you're trying to address. What, what are you most worried about for your state right now? I'm really worried about testing. I mean, Speaker Pelosi said it two months ago now, testing, 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 our capacity to make sure that we are testing the largest number of people. And then hospital capacity. We know that our hospitals and our healthcare workers and, you know, God bless our healthcare workers, our doctors, our nurses, supporting staff, our first responders, concerned about capacity when people are sick, you know, whether it's through COVID-19 or and many of the other emergencies that happen have been happening and will continue that our hospital workers have the support that they need, that they have the personal protection equipment that they need. Who would have ever thought that the greatest nation in the world would be struggling to get a proper amount of ventilators, life-saving equipment? And we're very concerned about the hospital's capacity to be able to do the job. Here in Florida, we have not peaked yet. We are certainly, our numbers are continuing to increase. And so until we peak, we know there will be a time after that before we'll see the flattening of the curve. And so we're just really concerned that we handle this right. Our Florida Surgeon General declared a public health emergency on March 1st, but it wasn't until April 3rd that the governor issued a stay-at-home order. And I'm just really concerned about how you start can certainly help determine how well you finish. And we just need to make sure we're calling this one right, because when we get it wrong, people suffer, people die. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like the initial delay at the federal level was compounded, particularly in Florida. And your governors continue to be, would idiosyncratic be a, be a fair word? <laughs> you know, he has declared that world wrestling entertainment is going to be an essential business that gets to remain open. But but just sort of I, I, without I don't mean to be snarky at all, but it must pose no, I hear dealing you. with him and his relationship to the White House. No. 
Well, he campaigned, and, and look, I served at Ron DeSantis on Judiciary Committee. I know him. He campaigned with uh, kind of wearing his relationship with the president like flying colors. But let me tell you something. These are critical times, and this is a very critical moment in our nation's history. And if you want to lead, you better lead from the front. His primary responsibility, like Every governor, like the president and like every elected official, is the preservation of human lives. It has to come first. And when he steps to the microphone, people expect him to be decisive, make the right decisions, don't fumble the ball, speak confidently, and get the job done. Protect people. Make the tough calls. If you want to lead, you better lead from the front. And so far, unfortunately, our governor, the third largest state in the nation, the great state of Florida, has not done that. And so if you want to lead, you better lead from the front because when you hesitate, when you blink, when you flinch, people can die. And, and, and Florida deserves better. And quite frankly, our nation deserves better than what we're seeing right now. All right. So that's a sort of fact on the ground. Now, he is the governor, but do you see your responsibility or or is somebody stepping into the leadership void or do you just have to take that as we in the in, in the federal system do? Well, that's Trump and have to work around him almost. Well, and let, let me say this, when I look, you know, at the federal government and the administration, thank God for our governors who get it right, who regardless of what foolishness is coming out of the White House, they are doing whatever it takes. They're paying any price and bearing any burden to protect the people that they represent. I thank God for our local elected officials, the mayors and others who have stepped in that, to fill that leadership void and are taking the steps that it takes to do what's right by the people. Our county health departments who have stepped up and, and, and leading the way to take care of people. And so we'll get it done because that's who we are. That's what we do. But boy, it sure would be great to have a coordinated, strategic effort to deal with COVID COVID-19 coming from the White House. We, we just don't have that right now. What are the plans for capacity, Congresswoman? I mean, I think that's around the corner for you. Yes. Are there plans in place to devote other facilities when you really do hit your peak? Yeah. And, and, you know, what we're dealing with something we've never seen before, which requires us to do some things that we have never done before. And it's been amazing to watch. Look, I, I think we have some of the best hospitals here in Central Florida of anywhere. And it's been just very interesting and reassuring, quite frankly, to watch them turn facilities that weren't designed to be hospitals or weren't designed to take in COVID-19 patients or weren't designed to, to do testing to turn those facilities into those places so they can serve the greatest number of people. But what I really do appreciate is that they're being proactive. They're not waiting until people are in line, waiting to be serviced, to figure it out. You know, we've had several conference calls with the hospital administrators and others to discuss these issues. So we will, when we hit our peak, that we will be prepared. I'm concerned, though, again, about our hospital, our workers, because, look, that's a pool of people, and they've been working around the clock and just so dedicated and so committed. And we just need to make sure that we're doing everything to take care of them. At the very least, they should not have to worry about personal protection equipment. And that's why it's so important that the president really has a coordinated effort to make sure the equipment is going into those places where who desperately need it the most. But it's about being proactive and not reactive.
Yeah, you hear about people having to reuse masks, people actually dying. You know, they, they really are. It's, you know, in 9-11, they were public officials whose duty it was. But the hospital workers seems to me that have been unbelievably heroic from doctors down to maintenance. Let me ask you, what are you talking with the speaker about what needs to be in the next stimulus bill? What are the holes that the biggest holes that still have to be plugged? Well, you know, uh, passing the $2.2 trillion relief package. It was the largest relief package in the history of this country. It needed to be one of the things we quickly realized. So we, we knew it kind of in the beginning, but we certainly realized that we realize it now is that it's not enough. It's not enough money. We wanted the CARES Act to protect people. There were some lessons learned from 2008 and 2009 when there wasn't really proper oversight of how the monies were spent to make sure there was no abuse or waste. So we learned that lesson. The speaker did in the CARES Act, put a commission in place, an IG in place that would provide the oversight. Of course, we know the White House didn't like that. No surprises there. But in the next package, we're really looking, we hope that that package can focus on recovery. Recovery. Now, if we get there or not, really kind of depends on when we're able to reopen the country. But when we do that, we want to make sure that people who have lost their jobs, those hit the hardest, can go to work. And so we've talked for years now, and certainly in the last this, this particular cycle about rebuilding our infrastructure. We know there are some significant needs out there. I, we think it's the greatest way to put people back to work, whether it's our highways, bridges and roads, or it's upgrading our transportation systems. When I talked about the 75 million people who visit Orlando every year, they come from countries that have alternative transportation, light rail and high-speed rail. We've got to improve our system here in the United States. We also know with the payroll protection program, for example, which was monies that goes to small businesses so they can keep pretty much the same number of, of employees on the payroll. That system has been open now for a little over a week. When they've gone to the banks to apply for those loans that can be 100% forgivable, many of the banks have turned them away saying, if you don't have a longstanding relationship with us, then, you know, we're serving our clients first. I understand that, but that's the majority of people who need the help are probably, who desperately need it, are probably those who don't have those longstanding relationships, maybe women and minority-owned business. So that's one of the loopholes, if you will, that we really need to go back. We're continuing to work with the banks right now, but we need to make sure we fix that so people who need the help the most uh, can get it. But we are, we're talking virtually every day about that to see what that next package looks like, and we'll continue to make it better. Each time, I have no doubt about that. What a set of gargantuan challenges, really. I'd like to shift gears to talk about your 20 years in the Orlando Police Department, where you eventually became the first woman police chief. I gather that, you know, during that time, violent crime fell quite a bit, and at least in part due to some of your programmatic efforts. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you were able to play a part there? Well, I do appreciate you asking that question. And look, when I look back over my life and I, you know, I grew up poor and the daughter of a maid and a janitor, I grew up poor, black and female in the South, but I had a mother and my father didn't finish high school, but they had big plans and big dreams for their children. And my mother told me that I could, I could be whatever I wanted to be or do whatever I wanted to do if I worked hard 
and treat people right. And I've tried to dedicate my life to doing that and giving back. I started my first job out of college. I worked as a social worker and I worked with families that needed emergency services, whether it was medical or, or food or their lights were being turned off. Then I worked with foster care children. And you talk about a job that can break your heart. That's one. But then I joined the Orlando Police Department. And I remember my first days on the police department and my training sergeant said, so you used to be a social worker. Well, police work is nothing like social work. And, you know, and I, I just kind of looked at her, of course, because I wasn't going to say a word. I was a recruit. And you know what I found out, though, Harry? Police work is a lot like social work if you're doing it correctly, right? And so I spent a lot of time. Now, yeah, when I was appointed chief, Crime was at an all-time high in Orlando, and I, I had to chuckle to myself a little bit. I said, okay, Orlando gets his first woman, and crime's at an all-time high. It was kind of like, okay, here we go. But I, I saw that crisis as an opportunity, and I reorganized the department. We focused on violent crime, murders, rapes, robberies. The reduction of violent crime was my number one concern. However, while we were aggressively dealing with the most violent offenders in Orlando, I also started a youth mentoring program that dealt with some of the most at-risk youth in some of the worst communities and worked along with them and their parents. We sponsored GED programs and built playgrounds and helped people improve their living conditions, did some things that, my, that sounds a heck of a lot like social work. And we were able to, as you've seen, with those two different approaches to dealing with the community, we were able to reduce violent crime by over 40%. I picked tough jobs and I, I just, I feel very blessed to have been able to rise through the ranks. I started out as a midnight shift officer in a patrol car responding to calls for service and was able to work my way up to the top. And I give my mother and my father, the maid and the janitor, all of the credit for my success and being able to really live the American dream. And I think my life is really a perfect example of what the dream is supposed to look like, that regardless of who you are, the color of your skin, how much money you have in the bank, you should be able to live up to your full potential. So being at OPD, Orlando Police Department, was such a rewarding career for me, and I think we, we made a difference. Well, now I really do want to invite you back because that, that, that story dovetails a lot with what I did as a United States attorney and tried the same kind of carrot and stick. But let's now just talk for a minute or two. You know, you came to national prominence in your role as impeachment manager and with your sort of poise and general faith in the Constitution, as you would often put it. And yet it feels to a lot of people that the Constitution got kind of uh, hoodwinked a bit or, you know, how do you... How do you feel? Do you have a sour taste in your mouth? In retrospect, it's hard as a law enforcement person to see a perp, as it were, you know, get away with it. It was. It was just really kind of downright shocking to me. I was a part of the impeachment inquiry as well, being a member of judiciary and the intelligence committees. And after that, when we were getting ready to prepare for trial, of course, there was a lot of talk about who the impeachment managers would be. And, you know, a lot of people would ask me if I was going to be a manager, colleagues and reporters and others. And I'm like, look, you know, I've done a lot of work on this and I, I don't think so. And, you know, whoever the speaker, it's her decision, whoever she selects, that's fine. We just need to put our best team together and move forward. 
So when I got a call to go see the speaker and I had not written a letter, I hadn't called her, I hadn't sent her a message, I hadn't sent up smoke signals saying I wanted to be an impeachment manager, I'd done none of that. And so when she called, when I got the call to go to her office, of course I did like we all do, right? It was like being called to the principal's office. And my first thought was, well, what did I do that she found out about? When I went to talk to her, and she said, well, you know, I just want to know if you're interested in being an impeachment manager. I, you know, I hadn't really heard. I said, look, Speaker, I said, I have worked on the inquiry. I said, I have helped to advance the ball down the field pretty far. It's okay with me if I don't get to take it into the end zone. And she said, well, I want you to be a manager. I said, okay, I'd be honored. And that started the process. Now, let me tell you, I've taken four oaths in my lifetime. I'm one of those people who, when I raise my hand and swear an oath, I take it very, very seriously that I will protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And just like I did as a young police officer and tried to do as the chief of police, nobody's above the law. And I can like you. You can look like me. You can not look like me. You can be my friend or someone I know. No one is above the law, and that is the same attitude I took to Congress and the same attitude I used when I approached this case. It was very, very disappointing that our president of the United States would take such an amazing opportunity to serve the American people and to be a light around the world and really abuse it in the way that he did. And so our job as impeachment managers was to present the best case that we could and present the evidence. And then it would be up to the jurors, the Senate, to render a decision based on the evidence. You know, Mitch McConnell had kind of telegraphed where he was before when he said basically there'd be no daylight between him and the president. I didn't pay that any attention because I couldn't. I had to as a former law enforcement officer and someone who does believe in the Constitution and the oath that I, the senators took their oath very seriously as I did. We saw the outcome. It was disappointing. It was disgraceful, clearly. Anybody who was paying any attention knows that the president abused his power and tried to obstruct Congress's effort to investigate. And so what I did, Harry, what I like I did as a police officer, sometimes we'd arrest bad people and they would get off in court. So I had to dust off, dust myself off and get ready for the next arrest, the next call, the next piece of service. I'm still very committed to the Constitution, and I'm still committed to providing the necessary oversight that I know the American people want us to provide. And so I will continue to do just that. It was an honor serving as one of seven impeachment managers. And there again, what an opportunity for a, a girl that grew up poor in the South. Yeah, I really like that idea, that tie to law enforcement. You know, you do you do the best you can and you put your faith in the system. That's the system we have, right? It's not perfect, but that's the system we have. Right. You've been, as you were with the speaker, refreshingly, I would say, you know, non-coy when you get now peppered with questions about uh, possible vice presidential chances. And, you know, you've been straight up about it. And I know that this isn't your decision. It's out of your hands. But has anybody, you know, been in touch with you or have you been asked to fill out any paperwork? Where does that now all stand? Well, I have not been asked to fill out any paperwork yet. And, and you know, for me, I, just like being invited or asked to serve as an impeachment manager, I want to serve, continue to serve my country where I'm needed. If I am 
fortunate enough to be selected to Sanbert side, former Vice President Joe Biden, I would consider it an honor and I would work my butt off to serve this country. That's nothing new to me. I would continue to do that. We'll see where this process goes. The beautiful thing, Harry, is that he has a lot of good choices and that gives me a lot of reassurance about the process. But to have my name called and to be considered and I think to for it to be a, a real possibility is just what living in the greatest country in the world is really supposed to look like. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. God, I'm just so impressed with from, you know, the two room shack up to this very minute and your constant refrain is a kind of faith in the Constitution and the American dream. Thank you so much for spending time with us. We, we really hope to watch your career flourish and to be able to talk to you every once in a while as it does. Thanks for inviting me. I look forward to the next time. Thank you very much again, Congresswoman Val Demings, for being our first ever guest on a Talking Feds one-on-one. You actually can find many other one-on-one conversations that we have with well-known commentators, both from the Talking Feds family, as it were, but also many other fields at patreon.com slash talkingfeds. That's where we post special exclusive material for supporters to thank them for helping us by paying $5 a month to defray the cost of this podcast. So if you have a minute, go to patreon.com slash talkingfeds and you can see what there is on offer. We'll be returning on Monday to talk about the virus and other Feds-related news with some of your favorite Feds, Maya Wiley, Joyce Vance, and Andrew Weissman. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.